You better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they're willing to we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. All right, so welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's Wednesday weekly live stream labor talk with labor leaders discussing current labor issues. My name is Evan Papp and I'm with Empathy Media Lab and I focus on labor, political economy, art and culture and my co-host this week is Bama Thria. Uh, Bama, do you want to introduce yourself and our guests this week? Hi, great to be with everyone this week. I'm Bama Athreya. I host the Gig Podcast, which is about uh, gig worker organizing worldwide. I am so delighted to be hosting this show tonight on a top another topic that I'm passionate about and with some absolutely wonderful guests. And so what we want to start by doing is let all you good folks who are listening in meet these wonderful activists going to ask each of them to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about what they work on, what they've been doing, or anything else you want to share. <laughs> Ladies, that's, that's fine, too. Uh, and then after we do a round of intros, I'm going to kick off our discussion for tonight. So, um, Neha, can we start with you? Sure. Thank you so much, Bama. And uh, thank you very much to Evan and Bama for inviting me. Um, this week, I actually, when when I got the invitation, was thinking how fun this was going to be because I love uh, uh, all of the panelists that are on today and, and get so much inspiration from Shannon, uh, JJ, and uh, and Bama. So thank you so much for having me. I am Neha Mishra, and I am the senior specialist for migration at the Solidarity Center. Um, and for those who don't know the Solidarity Center, we're an international labor rights NGO that's an allied organization of the AFL-CIO. We work on global labor rights issues around the world through 30 field offices working in over 60 countries. Great. Shannon, let's <laughs> turn to you. Hi, uh, thanks so much, uh, Bama, and um, good evening, brothers, sisters, siblings. It's a treat to be with you all and try to connect through this uh, platform. Um, I'm really excited for the discussion. I, um, I spend my days in my house, but uh, I'm officially working for uh, the AFL-CIO uh, uh, doing um, the immigration uh, policy work, um, which means that I get the privilege of working with our affiliates from all sectors, uh, with our labor uh, councils from all of our states and cities, um, and also with our, um, our International Trade Union Confederation and our global unions um, to try to, you know, shape and advance um, policies that, you know, ensure that all workers have rights um, and that we can all come together and build power to uh, to lift labor standards. So um, I work with a lot of you in doing that and look forward to the discussion. Fantastic. JJ, how about you? Thanks, Bama, and thanks, Evan. It's great to be here, uh, as always, with the experts, Neha and Shannon, on this topic. Uh, I'm JJ Rosenbaum with the newly merged Global Labor Justice and International Labor Rights Forum. 
we're a strategy hub that supports transnational organizing by uh, trade unions, migrant worker groups, uh, women's rights organizations, different organizations that are really trying to build power around the access of global supply chains and labor migration. Uh, this is a really important area for us to discuss and it's really timely to, uh, to have this great conversation about what, what are the opportunities here and, and where do we think these issues should go. Fantastic. So thanks so much for again for being with us this evening. And I'm just going to say a few things so that people in the audience can understand what we're talking about, uh, because we have been, uh, I think, four of us, uh, Evan, I know you're new to this, so you can keep us all honest, but four of us have been having this conversation for some years now. Uh, and we just want to catch up the rest of the world. And we also want to do it at a really interesting moment. You know, we uh, are coming out of one of the worst administrations we could even imagine um, on, you know, pretty much anything international, but certainly on, on the, these issues, migration, immigration, and labor. And we're starting a new administration. And it's so, it's exciting and hopeful in a way. Um, and, and I think it's a good moment for us to say, okay, what do we really think? right? The, the right policies are, what does progressive policy look like? And so that's one of the themes is what, if we all could just be sitting around, right, with the new administration, what would we tell them to do? And that's part of what this conversation is about. But the other thing, as you all know, is that we're coming out of this devastating year that has just, you know, brought about so much suffering for so many people. And because of you know, the work we've done, we're keenly aware that around the world, you know, low-wage workers, uh, people who were already kind of in precarious situations have been really badly hit, have lost their jobs. And, and you know, it's been shocking. We've, we've seen this huge population of migrant workers that have either gotten stuck in place away from their families or sent home, but, you know, with just no means of life. I mean, they, so I think people don't really realize the extent of the displacement that's gone on and, and the tragic human impact that's had. So we want to keep that in mind um, as we talk about what's hopeful and, and you know, kind of where we could go from here. So what I want to do to kick it off is I do want to say, like, I'm having a very good day. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because yesterday we all learned that a uh, lovely fellow traveler activist Julie Sue, Labor Commissioner of California, was just named Deputy Secretary of Labor. And that is amazing news for these issues because some of us like me are old enough to remember back in the day when, when I was leading actually the International Labor Rights Forum and she was leading an, uh, an uh, organization, a human rights organization in California that got involved with a case of migrant workers who were trafficked and worked in sweatshops in California, worked in a sweatshop, famous sweatshop called El Monte in California. And that was how I first met her, right? So like she was the lawyer, like taking on the case and be on behalf of these migrant women workers who had ended up in a traffic labor situation in a factory in California. And that case became a cause to live. And I think back on that now, and I think if anyone is gonna get it, right? She's gonna get it. So that's hopeful and that kind of is a way to kick off our conversation. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I wanna do just to make sure everybody has context on how these things even happen is I'm gonna ask you experts to, you know, to just help us 
understand what the current landscape is legally so we understand like why people are even in these situations and then we can talk about how to fix it and so to start with um i, I it would be super helpful if we could understand this whole concept let's let's be clear about what we're talking about we're talking about people who are migrating for work right they're not necessarily immigrants they're migrants they leave their countries for work they're often called guest workers although they're not often treated like guests and um you know they may want to go home again they're there to work and they want to go you know so so a lot of what's happened is we've ended up stuck in this really awful place in terms of how we treat those people. And so to start with um, JJ or Shannon, I know you guys are really super deep into the visa language here in the United States. And, and you know, I, I think many of us have heard of like guest workers in H1A, but we don't necessarily understand what it is. Uh, tell us what the legal context is for migrant workers in the US today. Like what are the restrictions on them and, and how does that work? So how much time do you have, Bama? I know, okay. I know. Well, you got you guys can just take it away from here. Go. There, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of layers um, to to that question, but I I actually I think it's really um, uh, relevant that you started with this um, Department of Labor announcement because I think one of the you know as we're thinking about um, you know progressive policy agenda, I think one of the fundamental things that you know we need to emphasize is um, you know a shift away from immigration enforcement um, and towards labor standards enforcement right and you know we have pursued as a nation decades of enforcement only strategies um, right um, and uh, and uh, at the same time really been starving our labor agencies of resources, of mandate. And so the result is that right now we spend 12 times more as a country to enforce our immigration laws than we do to enforce the labor laws meant to protect, you know, 160 million workers and in, in work sites all around the country, right? Um, and, you know, there's also a disproportionate, um, similarly disproportionate um, level of agents, right? Um, you know, which is why, you know, most employers um, have no real worries about um, an OSHA investigator <laughs> showing up at their job site because there are just too few of them. Um, and so we really do need to see a, a rebalancing um, of those priorities. Um, and I hope that those are some of the shifts that we'll begin to see very quickly um, in, in this administration and, um, and, and moving forward because, you know, it has been a, a trajectory built up over decades and it's really time, uh, it's really time to shift that. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we've had very foreseeable consequences from that such disproportionate investment, right? Um, and this is one of the things that um, enables and empowers the, um, the exploitation in our work sites and employers really have very little reason to fear consequences for that as a result. Um, and, and and so I think, um, you know, at base, you know, uh, the work ahead of us in the immigration policy space is to make sure that we don't have 
tiered rights for workers, <laughs> right? That everybody has um, the same ability to, um, the same protections on the job and the same ability to enforce those protections, not just on paper, but be able to realize them. Um, and we know um, that that's a challenge for workers who don't have papers. Um, but to get to your question about um, these temporary labor programs, um, the same is really true for workers who are invited in. Um, in you know polite term of guest worker programs, but in this what we could also call like a captive labor context, um, where you know they're brought into the country um, because there's some uh, determination that they're they're needed, um, and, and yet their status is tied to their employer, um, and oftentimes they're not able to to. Uh, you know, travel with their families, um, and and uh, and if they try to exercise their rights, then their visas could be pulled. Um, and I think you know we've we've really seen uh, the 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 failings of so many systems uh, that you know uh, and structures, right? The ways that they failed workers through the lens of the pandemic, um, and um, and certainly this temporary labor model should be one of those things that we're re-examining now as we've seen workers who are in formal programs stranded, <laughs> left without, um, you know, without work, sometimes without housing, without ways to get back, without access to social protections. Um, and so this is a critical moment to reimagine the structure of these programs that have really basically serve the agenda of making a disposable workforce in the global economy, right? Um, and, and commodifying um, uh, workers in ways that have a lot of very ugly racial and gender undertones um, in the way that they've operated. Sorry for running on. No, that was great big picture stuff. I mean, I know, you know, JJ, I would love for you to jump in because I know you've worked directly with migrant workers, right? And so you know, just what are what are things like in the context that you know we have to in the legal context we have today, and and you know what is what does it look like for them? Well, I think uh, Shannon's point is really important because we have um, a broken or some would say rigged immigration system that works really well for employers and is really problematic for workers and people and families and refugees and. Um, most people that are on the move. Uh, and so while there's about uh, our estimates with EPI are about a million and a half folks on guest worker visas, temporary work visas uh, tied to an employer, um, you know, there's 11 million undocumented people in the country, many of whom also traveled for work. Um, so you sort of have people locked into these captive labor systems that Shannon talked about um, and locked out of other rights through a lack of status. Um, and a recent report by Forward US uh, estimates that 5 million undocumented people are working as essential workers right now. Um, a million of those as dream are dreamers. Uh, and so I think we have to really have a holistic approach to getting people on a path to permanency, on a path to uh, full labor rights, as Shannon was saying. Um, I mean, that's really the baseline. If there's not a competition where employers can save money uh, by cheating immigrant workers and migrants, then there's a lot of the problems will work themselves out. Um, and this is really a global phenomenon, I think, and I know Neha will speak more to this. Uh, and, you know, we're, we now have the global compact on safe and orderly migration. I think one thing that um, we at GLJ ILRF hope is that 
the US will engage and will lead on a labor rights approach to this. Fundamentally, labor rights and freedom of association have to be at the forefront of, uh, of labor and migration policy, both in the national context and in our uh, international diplomacy. Um, yeah, Neha, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you something specific so we can also just like see what the parallels are between how we treat you know, these, these workers who are uh, on temporary visas here and how that works in other countries. And I know you've done a lot of work on things like you know, the kafala system and in Middle Eastern countries, which isn't all that different. So if you could talk a little bit about what the context is like for migrant workers in other countries. Sure, Bama, and, and just building on what Shannon and JJ were saying, the the infrastructure, the systems, the the structures that are in place to manage migration in the United States are emulated around the world. And it's just become the predominant paradigm to treat workers as disposable, create temporary migration programs that really benefit employers and governments of countries of origin and countries of destination in terms of remittances that workers send back and not having to deal with unemployment, et cetera. Um, but that, that system that is in place in the United States, we see everywhere in the world in, in the wealthier countries, whether it's Europe, Canada, Malaysia, in Asia, the, the GCC countries, it, it replicates itself. And I think what, you know, this sounds horrible to say it's exciting, but um, I can't think of a better word. Like the thing that this horribleness of COVID has, has uh, made me excited about is that people can't, policymakers and others can't hide behind, you know, the shield that they had up before. Like COVID has shown a spotlight that we have evidence now, we have stories, we have data we can put before policymakers and say, you can't hide anymore. You know, we're, everything that we've been saying to you for 10 years, 20 years, JJ, Shannon, Bama, yourself, like two governments that these temporary migration pro programs are exploitative. They are structurally flawed and here's why, what we've been saying to them has been proven in COVID. So when we've said to governments that, you know, uh, by not allowing workers freedom of association in other countries when they migrate um, is a problem. We saw that in COVID that when, you know, when workers either got laid off uh, they weren't given their severance pay. There was huge wage theft. Like wage theft has always been a problem for migrant workers, but it has been exponentially a, a bigger problem under COVID because employers were so desperate as the economies were crashing. They just fired workers and didn't pay them what they were owed. Um, we've been saying that for years, there has to be protections against that. And freedom of association with unions would have allowed unions to negotiate with employers for protection occupational safety and health protections. Like we've been saying forever, you know, that workers should be able to have a say in the safety of their own workplaces. And we've shown in these formal, regular, not just not undocumented, but workers that come through legal with a visa anywhere around the world, that they were have been denied proper occupational safety and health equipment, uh, personal protection equipment. And the biggest thing as Shannon was talking about these, these programs and the way global migration is structured as a practice around the world, it excludes migrant workers from social safety net protections, excludes them from healthcare and medical care, from act to access to um, income stabilization. So we, we have, we work in, in Jordan and there was a migrant worker there named Sabina who talked about, she got, she was a domestic worker and she got thrown out of the home of the family that she worked with, one, because of fear of COVID, but two, they didn't want to pay her anymore. And she lived on the streets and didn't eat for five days until she was able to get home. And her family back in our origin country of Sri Lanka relied on her income. They too also weren't eating because um, 
she wasn't able to send her income home anymore. And this is not just an anomaly because of COVID. This is because the systems in place did not allow for workers to be covered by an unemployment insurance, didn't allow them to get income stimulus that any governments may have given, and didn't even allow them to get food services. So these migrant workers in Jordan were denied access to NGOs that could give them food services. And this is all built into the structure of these programs that are completely flawed. Um, and just one more point, Bama, to add, like from what JJ was saying, I, I do have hope. Um, you know, the U.S. government pulled out a lot of uh, out of a lot of multilateral institution processes, and they pulled out of um, the Global Compact for Migration that JJ just mentioned. I am very confident that the new administration is going to come back in to the Global Compact for Migration process, and because of appointments like, of people like Julie Sue, that hopefully we can push um, them to have a more progressive agenda and voice in these multilateral institutions where there are still a lot of other authoritarian governments who have a loud voice within the UN system, that hopefully the US can play a leading role again as a progressive voice, um, even different from the Obama years. Yeah, so I mean, what I'm taking away so far is like we have, we haven't really gotten into this yet, but now let's start getting into the, we have a real need for reform here in the US in terms of our policy and how we treat workers, migrant workers here in the US. And we have a need on a multilateral level to like get involved with the multilateral negotiations that are trying to fix this very broken system. So I wanna talk about both of those, but before we get there, I actually really just do wanna make this real for people to understand what's happening. And, and JJ, I think you mentioned that, you know, there's this huge number of essential workers who are, you know, and they're essential. And, and I think you've been writing about them and I know I've been reading about, you know, some, like they're, they're working, you know, they're, they're, they're picking vegetables and fruits, right? I mean, they're, they're part of our food system. They're in meat processing plants. Can you talk a little bit about like what they're doing right now? Like what are these jobs that they're doing that, you know? Sure, I mean, I think that they're, you know, centered in, in the frontline jobs that we can imagine, farm workers, care workers, retail and logistics workers, hospitality workers, um, all the things that are uh, enabling the country to survive. Um, and it's not just in the United States, it's around the world. These numbers, the OECD countries, um, similar numbers bear this out. Um, the um, OECD says that in the medical workforce in OECD countries, one in four medical doctors is a migrant worker and one in six nurses. And so literally our healthcare system is being held up by migrants. Uh, I think it's also important, you know, to recognize that the pandemic represented also a massive lockdown on borders and inability also of many people to move. Um, and so um, there's been a lot of uh, research and I dropped a few, a few uh, resources in the chat for folks that wanna learn more um, of folks in labor camps in, in GCC countries, for example, that were stuck in teaming labor camps without access to work or access to healthcare. Um, I think, you know, in the United States, the National Immigration Project has quite a lot of litigation about immigrants and immigration detention at, who have gotten sick because the past administration moved people around. Um, it's not only like lacking medical care, but exposing um, people to virus transmission. Um, and so I think that, um, and, and the OECD says that, that, that the new visas and permits were down 46% in the first half of 2020 and 72% 
in the second half, and that's a historical low since the numbers have been taken. So we also have um, we have a lot of repair to do of people that, um, particularly people who migrate historically for work, who've been stuck in a place. And, and um, I also wanted to mention the April 22nd Trump visa ban, which um, was a ban on people entering on diversity visas, family visas, and work visas. Uh, the court has struck down the diversity visa part, but not the other parts. So we're hoping the Biden administration will strike that down and also deal with reparations and um, remedies for folks that were trapped um, in the, con you know, in labor migration midpoint. Uh, we've tried to do the estimates and think at least 2,000 low-wage H2B workers were caught outside the country already having potentially paid recruitment fees, you know, given up jobs in their home country, uh, relying on U.S. income for their family. So there's a lot of impacts that it's not only flipping policy, but it's actually dealing with the impacts on people of that policy and the overall um, racism of the past administration against all, all categories of immigrants, basically. JJ, just to note that many of the, when you were talking about the essential workers and many of them are migrant workers, I, I, I've seen statistics that uh, majorities of um, essential workers are women too. And I think that's really important to note. I have a, a question since all four of you are very connected to kind of the DC uh, beltway conversations. And I see globalization oftentimes is actually just something that is there to bust unions and to do a race to the bottom runaway shop of labor. And a lot of people have gone through school learning about the miracles of globalization only to now find ourselves in this moment. And I'm, I'm wondering in the White House right now, there's still a lot of people who bought into that ideology of globalization. And ultimately, there is a zero sum game in the sense that the profit making from a lot of these corporations and banks that make money off of exploitating, like exploitative pro, uh, um, on labor, essentially being exploitative on labor, you have to fight them and eventually take away power from them. So I, I'm just, what is your feeling right now in the, the Biden White House on people who are starting to wake up to the fact that labor precedes capital. It's what gives capital value. And that, that question, I guess, I'm, I'm very curious. So. If anyone wants to take that, it, it may be still, I, still I'm a looking hot at Shannon. <laughs> I mean, so just, yeah, go ahead, Shannon. I was gonna say, I, I'm hopeful. I think that we have to, those of us that are, um, you know, in the labor movement have to have a labor movement that crosses borders and we have to have a progressive internationalism that demands labor rights for folks that are working all across the world. Um, I think that uh, that too long the like the polls have been either you're, um, you know, trying to like narrow the borders and protect workers in the US to the exclusion of everyone else, or you, you know, promote the kind of globalization that you mentioned that makes uh, corporate elites rich and represses everyone else. And I think that gets into a broader discussion that I know, um, and Obama has been a big part of as well as Neha and Shannon about um, what are the policies that promote decent work at home for people and give people the choice to migrate or not migrate. That has to be a choice based on a decent job um, that meets you know, decent work standards of ILO. Again, too much of this policy has, has, has been promoted um, 
as a giveaway to corporations saying that if your job is at the bottom of a supply chain of a US corporation, it's therefore a good job. And that is not the case. The statistics bear that out that in many countries, um, informal sector jobs, domestic workers, farm workers are better jobs than some of the supply chain jobs. So we have to get real about measuring what those jobs are. Uh, some of our partner unions have done some of this research in Central America and found, for example, even on the um, supply chains of multinationals, the difference in a choice about migration is not just a job, it's a union job. And so I think we have to just get really real about the importance of freedom of association, the importance of wage and health and safety and social contract and, and creating those jobs. Um, then there's not a, the, the, many of the competition problems go away, not all. And a lot of the, the, those that remain can be addressed through very intentional policies with a racial justice lens. Yeah, no, I'm, and I, you know, can't resist jumping in here too. And I know we're probably just a minute away from break. So let me get a quick point and then we'll come back to the conversation. But, um, you know, the, this, we need to turn it around to a race. You're talking about a race to the bottom, Evan, and we need to turn it around to a race to the top. And we can't do that in a world where capital is completely footloose and can go anywhere. But workers are governed by these very stringent, you know, constraints about where and under what conditions they can move for work. If labor were not constrained, you know, arguably, right, you wouldn't have capital just cheeky, you know, chasing the cheapest labor because they would have to pay because, you know, workers would have that autonomy to choose. And so it's freedom of association. It's also freedom of mobility in ways that are not allowed now. Yeah, there are lots of migrant workers in the world, but they don't actually get to choose much about their terms and conditions of work. And if they did, would they be, right, would the whole floor get lifted up if they had that autonomy to negotiate? So. Um, so, uh, you know, Neha, do you want to jump in? I mean, I've got to do, but I think we have to go to break. I can do it after the break if we. Okay, I will we'll play uh, a song that is appropriate to this conversation and we'll come back from the break. So. No one wants to become a refugee. People don't want to be a refugee, but they have no choice.
sipping on this drink for the last time All I really wanted is a peace of mind What's gonna be, it's gonna be But at least I got you and you got me Need the strong survive. Tell me that it's part of the plan. Why am I sinking like quicksand? You tell me that it's part of the jam. Why is no one dancing with the band? Follow me, I am on your side. But we don't have much time. Mama said there's a war outside Hold me to strong survive Follow me, I am on your side I am on your side But we don't have much time Mama said there's a war outside Hold me to strong survive All right, so that is uh, Follow Me by Moxie Rea and Wyclef for Global Citizen. We are talking about migration, and obviously that's more of a refugee uh, song, but I do feel that um, it is kind of appropriate and we should humanize all of these struggles. So back to you, Obama. Great, and so if anyone's tuned in partway, our guests are Neha Misra from Solidarity Center, Shannon Letterer from the AFL-CIO, and JJ Rosenbaum from Global Labor Justice, ILRF. And Neha, I'm gonna pick up where we left off the conversation before the break, and I also wanna ask you to sort of start to pivot us toward the, you know, what, what can people do? What can all of us do? And what can policymakers do? But especially what can workers themselves do? And I know you've been part of some really amazing work with amazing organizations that are organizing migrant workers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, just real quick, just to build a little bit on Evan's question earlier and, and uh, what, what you all responded, which I agreed with completely. Um, there's a quote from a former International Labor Organization Secretary General um, Juan Somavia, who said, uh, globalization's greatest failure is not creating jobs where people live. And I think for all of us, there's two points there. One, first and foremost, it has to be about the creation of decent work, which if people haven't heard the term decent work, it's, it's coined by the International Labor Organization, but it means all the things that we talk about in terms of a living wage and social protections, et cetera. Um, but creating decent work where people live is a start. And then as we were all saying, everyone should have the right to migrate. But for me, it's about policy coherence. Everywhere in the world, including in the United States, there's no policy coherence about what labor markets really need, what is the labor we need, and how do we, how do we structure migration governance to, to uh, reflect that reality. And Shannon talks about this a lot, like there, the idea of having independent labor market commissions so that can look at where are the real labor shortages, where do we need assistance? And then if we really need those jobs, let's make them decent jobs where they're not temporary, 
like, you know, uh, all the jobs that JJ and Shannon were talking about and in the, in the programs we work with people around the world, they call the, you know, temporary migration programs, but they're permanent jobs, you know, so workers will do the same job for two years, have to go home, pay recruitment fees again, go through some bureaucratic process to get a visa to come back and do the same exact job. And so if there is a need in a labor market, that's a reality for a job, let's create decent work and processes where people can bring their families with them. So, you know, we have, Obama, like, you know this, we have entire sectors of low wage workers around the world who apparently we've all decided their lives don't mean as much and they don't get to be with their own families. Like, why is that okay? That we think it's fine for someone be just because they're a low wage worker in agriculture, domestic work, construction, manufacturing, service industry, that just because their job is considered low wage and given less value in terms of economics, that we think it's okay that they don't have no right to be with their spouse, that they don't get to see their own parents, they don't have to, that they don't have a right to raise their own children. Like that is what we have said with the global migration architecture, that it's okay because you're poor and because we don't value your job as much in terms of wages, that you have no right to be with your own family. And that's what we see in H2A and H2B, uh, H1, uh, not H1 as much, but in other migration programs in the United States and globally. Like I meet domestic workers around the world who are taking care of the elderly, taking care of other people's children, and they haven't seen their own children in three or four years. Why is that okay? I, I, I just don't get, there's no policy coherence. And so I just needed to say that. Um, and then pivoting to your other things, like what can we do? I think as a labor movement, we are in the best position right now to say a worker is a worker is a worker. We are all workers and we all deserve the same labor rights and to push this administration and others, and that's what Solidarity Center is doing. We're working with unions and, and the labor movement and labor NGOs around the world to help them uh, engage their governments and to say, we demand um, what the International Trade Union Confederation is calling a new social contract, where there is a, a, a floor uh, for all workers, regardless of status, regardless of nationality, where we have you know, job guarantees, a living wage, social protections, et cetera. And, and maybe I'll pivot to Shannon now to kind of build on some of that because um, I know the AFL-CIO is working a lot on this too. Yeah, thanks. And I guess I, I just like want to take a moment to thank you for that musical <laughs> interlude. That was really um, inspirational. I think it's a, um, I think it's really helpful not to silo the conversations um, between refugees and migrants and immigrants um, because you know the fact is um, right that um, that we have unprecedented need <laughs> um, for refugee resettlement globally right now. Um, we are. Um, woefully failing um, in building um, a vision for how to respond to the level of human displacement that we're seeing um, that we know is only going to continue to increase with the climate uh, crises that we're staring down. Um, and, uh, and, and so, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that it, it links directly because, you know, I mean, obviously, if you look at the U.S. history, right, successive waves of immigrants and refugees have helped to 
build and, you know, serve our country, right? Um, and so I think from the perspective of, of, of the AFL-CIO, it's really important that we maintain that character of having an immigration system that's primarily designed to serve people, right? That's about families, that's about our meeting our humanitarian needs. And when we welcome people in, in that way, then we expand the workforce, right? Um, but we do it in ways um, that serve other purposes, right? And we obviously need much better systems then for um, like onboarding people into the economy, ensuring that they can, you know, know their rights, you know, get um, in, into jobs and things like that. And, and I think we need to think about building those systems up. But you hear a lot of talk right now about the need to shift to a merit-based immigration system. And this is really code, right, for an employer-controlled system that's about um, sort of determining who we're gonna admit based on, you know, the, the, the whims of the corporate class. And it's a really, really dangerous moment. And if you look at the data over the past four years, and um, I know there's gonna be a new paper coming out from Daniel Costa at EPI next week, over the course of uh, the Trump administration, um, you, <laughs> you know, you saw a really interesting trend, which was that we, essentially abandoned refugee resettlement, right? We saw all of these obstacles to asylum seekers. Um, there there, you know, serious barriers to families coming in, all of this vetting that went on, but the temporary labor programs, they were steady or elevating, right? And so this is a really dangerous, it's a recipe, right, for, um, for exploitation and and for um, for continuing to see these kinds of kind of egregious uh, inequalities um, that we know are are fueling so much of the political instability that we face here and in other places. So, um, you know, if you look at um, other regions of the world, like, you know, the Gulf countries, as it's been referenced, it's, it's not a fanciful notion to imagine, you know, moving towards a system where large, large portions of your workforce um, you know, are, are temporary, <laughs> they have no political rights, uh, right? Um, and this is uh, fundamentally, it's, a, it's about disenfranchisement of the working class, right? Um, and that is, um, you know, I think that that's some of the crux of what we're up against. So I think that in defending our refugee resettlement and defending our, that we're really also talking about at the core, what should our immigration system be doing, right? Um, and, and it's not about delivering an on-demand disposal workforce at you know uh, you know suppressed wages um, to uh, you know to, to employers um, but that is very much I think uh, some of the core push and pull that we're facing right now and, and Mama, can I just add so as, as Shannon was talking about the disenfranchisement of the working class I think the things that you work on too like we have to talk about the future of work is linked to this and the whole gig economy idea like I've been hearing this term virtual migrants being thrown around um, which is a little uh, disconcerting, and we can talk about that another time. But just to put a marker out there that 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 everything Shannon was just talking about is also linked to the future of work conversations and, and the gig economy and how migrants are being used within that gig economy too. Yeah, no, that's completely right on, and I won't go down that path right now because I want to sort of keep on you and like you know the what should we do now given the system as it is right now i mean should we even have such a thing as guest workers like what are the alternatives that that you all can imagine 
Well, I wanted to jump in and bring it back to your question also about some of the appointments that we're really excited about and what can this administration do. Uh, I'm also very excited for Julie Sue to join Marty Walsh at the top of the Department of Labor, um, both for what it means for um, you know the Department of Labor's work in the United States on enforcement. We should be able to get the memorandums of understanding, uh, getting ICE out of labor enforcement. We should be able to get a workable program where people are getting work authorization and status when they're in labor disputes when they're uh, you know, facing retaliation, some of these things that we've been working on for decades, we should be able to get over the line. But also because the work of the International Labor Bureau is really important. Um, and we also need labor experts in the Department of Homeland Security, in the State Department, in USTR. I mean, we need labor experts and we need to see uh, freedom of association for migrants and the strengthening of trade unions around the world as part of our foreign policy agenda. You know, I want to see when Biden is traveling to different countries, I want to see his team meeting with trade union leaders there. We've just come from a, an election here where it was community organizing and trade union organizing that delivered our, saved our democracy, <laughs> you know, and so we see now that the, like in our own house, how the pushback against right-wing authoritarianism was held by the labor movement and community organizing institutions. So when we go to other countries, we need to be meeting with those folks and uplifting that work. It needs to be not only national policy. Um, another um, appointment we're excited about um, is the acting general counsel of the board, Peter Orr, who spoke about like the legacy of his, his immigrant parents that he was gonna bring to the job, um, you know, uh, and some of the uh, exciting suggestions um, uh, of who may take his place. You know, I think we we need uh, we need in the labor bureau people that know about Im immigrant workers, and in the state department and the foreign policy places, we need people that know about labor. I would like to just also kind of jump in on the the scarcity of jobs that actually provide a meet like a living wage throughout the world and i met bama uh while through our work at united states agency for international development and i think we also need to be looking at how do we build the world's economy so that's equitable for everyone who's building it and there there's so much work to be done i mean we the fact that people want to come to the united states that's a huge blessing and we should be opening like our arms to that, that people wanna come here and, you know, we don't have demographic crises for, for instance. I mean, even the most hard-nosed anti-immigrant bigot should understand it's in the economic interest for all, us all. And, and then at the same time, we need to create jobs. We need to create production, agro-industrial production. Everyone needs a house right there. That's a job for a lot of people. Everyone needs access to schooling. We need to build schools. We need to, you know, hire teachers. We need doctors, hospitals. Uh, I mean, there's endless amount of work to be done in this world, and that that's another aspect is to increase the the potential for that work and and resources for everyone. So that's where I'm really hopeful that this administration can kind of attack its foreign policy with the the trade union movement that's even within the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 23, where it's like everyone has a uh, right to work, free choice of employment, everyone has a right to form and join a trade union. And, you know, this is still just in the area of, um, you know, kind of hopeful aspirations, but let's make this happen. Everyone's, the 145 nations have signed on to it. 
Yeah, I, you know, but I think one of the realities, Shannon, what you just said a few minutes ago is really resonate is, you know, it's kind of sticking with me and that is, but the system that we have is not one where people don't move, right? They still move, they're still coming here, but they're coming here under such employer control. And that's what we have to upend. So, I mean, you know, just drilling down a little bit, if you could rewrite some of our policy, what would it look like? Well, we've been uh, kind of actually engaging in that exercise. We were excited, actually. Um, oh, God, all the days blurred together, but just uh, just uh, towards the end of the 116th Congress, um, to introduce um, with um, with Representative Castro's office um, kind of a new vision for how some of our uh, seasonal. Uh, worker programs could uh, function in ways that are, um, you know, really preventing the intentional um, displacement and bypassing of, uh, of U.S. workers, um, then allowing um, workers to, um, to control their own visas, uh, to come with rights, with their families, be able to change jobs, and then um, be able fairly quickly to earn uh, a path to permanence, right? Um, and so it's, it's really, um, you know, entirely possible to design a system uh, where where there is need um, for workers uh, to come that isn't exploitative, uh, but it requires a, a commitment to do that, um, and um, and it requires um, a, some real calling of the question of why the programs exist to begin with. Um, so I think that it is um, an exercise that we should engage in. We should put those ideas. What would a what would that model look like? But at the same time, just going back to my previous point, um, I, I think and I hope that we need to keep our emphasis overall for the movement that we're encouraging in other um, pathways that allow work, but don't have um, sort of like employer need as their basis, right? Um, and so if you come here as, as a, a refugee, then you get a visa um, and your family comes with you and then you are able to work, right? Um, we're gonna need some systems for figuring out how we're gonna process climate migrants, um, you know, and we want people to be able to then you know, who, who have settled here to bring their families here, right? And those people uh, need employment and jobs. And so I think that um, that we also need to, to, you know, to figure out how to ensure that, that we don't um, shrink those spaces or, um, or envision that the answer to, um, um, the answer to, to to filling jobs in in any country should not immediately be looking at uh, sort of underpaid migrant workers. Number one, we need a domestic workforce development strategy, and then as we look to um, ensure that there are um, more fair opportunities for movement, um, then we don't want to necessarily de define those pathways based on uh, employer need, right? But based on some of the many other, um, you know pressing concerns that we that we have globally and we know are going to be growing. Great. Um, I do want to throw my question about organizing back in because I think it would be great to, you know, just kind of uh, recognize some of the stories of migrant workers, despite all the odds who have been able to organize if, if either JJ or Neha, you want to jump in on that. JJ, you can go first if you want to, but um, I mean, there's 
so many. I think the main point is that there's not this assumption that that immigrant workers can't organize or won't organize. I think we've all, all of us here know not to be true. And so, and that includes workers on visas, you know, whether it's the seafood workers in Louisiana that organized on the Walmart supply chain from Mexico um, and helped then build a worker center in Mexico run by the organization ProDesk to train um, workers and build campaigns in their country before they come or the students from all around the world at the Hershey factory um, with broad support from labor, you know, or the workers after Hurricane Katrina. There's so many in the US and, and around the world um, that, are, that are so vibrant. And I think um, in terms of their organizing, part of what, uh, why I was really excited to join this conversation today is I think we, we have to, even as we move towards a discussion of progressive policy, we have to bring the corporate capture analysis into the immigration conversation. I think there's been um, growing movement work around that by a lot of young organizers and activists around um, the enforcement and how getting tech out of ICE and all of and that, that piece of work, but on the future flow, um, the workers coming in the future and how we enable that as Shannon was talking about, there's been a, a, a gap in the corporate capture analysis that has been growing in other places. So we're gonna have to do this work showing who's benefiting our basic organizing questions, like who's benefiting, how does the system need to change to stop uh, the, you know, the, the value and the money going up? Well, um, you know, to Neha's point earlier, um, the conditions for migrant workers are increasingly, um, increasingly degrading. And just one example, Bum, well, two examples, one of why it's important to organize in, in unions. Um, when I was giving the, the bad examples, I want to give one good one. Um, we work with a uh, union of um, sugarcane plantation uh, unions in Costa Rica, where the majority of the workforce are Nicaraguan migrant workers. And when the pandemic hit, because the workers had a union, um, the union was able to insist. So as, as we see in many places around the world, including the United States, migrant workers are also often forced into housing where there's many people in you know one little housing space, um, often in bunk beds, six people in a room, whatever. And for social distancing, that doesn't actually work very well. And so this union in Costa Rica was able to negotiate with the employer for additional housing us to separate the workers for PPE, personal protection equipment. And when the, with the, when the, uh, if the, when the employer wasn't able to provide all of that, they were able to get severance for the workers to get their full pay and they could go back to Nicaragua. And so even if they weren't able to finish out their contract because the conditions weren't safe, the union was able to negotiate um, in the last few months uh, to get those workers their full pay. And so that's huge. And we are seeing more and more now because of the pandemic, workers understanding in many countries that we work in around the world, the importance of organizing. Because when one worker has been speaking out, they've been being fired, retaliated against, but really these kind of spontaneous um, actions that we're seeing in many countries that, that we're working in, where per workers are coming together collectively to fight both for the wages that I was mentioning, the issue of wage theft, but uh, one of the big things we're seeing a lot of is this occupational safety and health. It's been huge. And even among domestic workers where it's even harder. But Shannon, go ahead, sorry, give examples, yeah. 
Oh, no, that's okay. I just wanted to make sure. I mean, like, it's because of, like, in, incredible, like, Filipina <laughs> migrant workers that I do this work at all. They're, like, my inspiration. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, probably all of us who do this work can, you know, just picture right now the faces of so many inspiring, militant, um, amazing <laughs> uh, migrant uh, workers who, um, you know, really, I think our job, you know, in doing this policy work is to to get out of their way, right, um, and to and to remove the barriers um, that are, you know, allowing immigration enforcement to be sort of weaponized um, as a tool to prevent them um, from organizing, right? So that you know, so that we can remove those those sort of structural barriers, um, and you know, that then I, you know. I think it's abundantly clear <laughs> um, that you know they're going to revitalize, um, you know. The labor movement, the tactics, the vision, everything, you know, I mean, there's so much of the, the fresh energy that we see, the inspiring tactics coming in this space. Um, and so, you know, we we all need that, <laughs> obviously, in, in, in this movement. And um, and that's why we have to, you know, you know, fix these rules and 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 get them out of the way. I would just add to Bama, I think um, what's exciting to me is uh, we're also seeing more transnational organizing intentionally along migration corridors. And I think as that happens, it's already pushing us um, out of the purely national lens of, of systems as defined in the silos of immigration and like asking questions about trade and development and foreign policy. Um, so I'm really excited about that work. We're part of a, um, a network called the Corridors of Justice with Central American, Mexican and US space organizations um, you know, looking at how do you organize across the corridor. I know um, uh, Solidarity Center is supporting a lot of this work all around the world. It's not just the US out, it's, it's across Asia, Asia, Middle East. So to me, that's one of the things I'm most hopeful about. I think it's like building and strengthening and innovating new kinds of organizing. Fantastic. I mean, I think this is, we're coming to the end of the time, which is shocking because it feels like it's really flown by. Um, and I think it's a really good place to end. It's a sober reminder that for all of the challenges and restrictions we see on the right to organize around the world, those are even more on migrant workers. I mean, even where workers can, you know, organ domestic people who live in that country can organize, often the migrant workers are prohibited by law. And, and so I think the, you know, the, the work that you're doing, the struggles, to make sure that they can organize are really sort of the critical thing that we all are gonna need um, when we talk about what migration policy needs to look like going forward. It's gotta be about organizing and you know the ability to organize at the end of the day. So I love ending on this note. Um, we don't have to end. We usually open it up now to other members of the Labor Radio Network. So if you all wanna stick around and see what other people wanna talk about, that would be great. Um, but we will formally sort of close at this point. I'll turn to Evan to see if he's got any closing words and, and just thank you all for being willing to be with us this evening. Um, Evan, over to you. Yeah, definitely thank you for coming on the show and hopefully you're gonna be available you know, in the coming months because you bring such a, a wealth of experience and perspective and knowledge and uh, like Bama said, uh, at the eight o'clock hour, um, folks come from the network and we just kind of you know, have a very informal chat. But with that, we're gonna wrap it up with two minutes in labor history followed by station ID. Thank you. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. Oh.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1908. That was the day the United States Supreme Court ruled that bans on yellow dog contracts were unconstitutional in the case of Adair versus United States. The case served to nullify the Erdman Act of 1898, which banned such contracts for those who worked on moving trains in the railroad industry. The Erdman Act had been a response to the 1894 Pullman strike. At the time, the federal government smashed workers striking against deep wage cuts and for union recognition with Eugene V. Debs' American Railway Union. Seeking to prevent any disruptions along the railroads, the Erdman Act banned any contracts that required workers to renounce unions in order to gain employment, recognize the right of union organizations as a means of collective bargaining, and established mechanisms for the arbitration of grievances. In 1906, William Adair, a supervisor with the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, fired a member of the Order of Locomotive Firemen for his membership. Adair was indicted under the Erdman Act, found guilty, and fined. He then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and won. The Supreme Court ruled that the Erdman Act violated the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment and served to supersede the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. The court argued that the railroad's employment decisions were a protected right so long as they did not injure the public interest. Congress could not criminalize the firing of an employee because of union membership. Dissenting opinions centered on the potential for renewed labor conflict. Workers would have to wait almost 25 years for yellow dog contracts to be banned in all industries with the passage of the 1932 Norris LaGuardia Act. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. You better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear There are voices still calling from across the years And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land And they will until we all come to understand None of us are free, none of us are free 